Welcome back to the Movement Underground Radio. This is your host, Mike Stella, and this week's episode, I have my good friend and physical therapist, Dr. Joseph Lavaca, who's another rock tape instructor, and on this week's episode, really dive deep in this whole idea of the emotional aspects of movement and how in this new age of telehealth and virtual training and virtual treatment, how having a good understanding behind the science of emotions and how that plays a role in the way people feel and function can really be pulled to the forefront to get those virtual sessions the best possible outcome. So I'm really excited to talk to Joe. He's had a lot of great insights as he's been working on this realm of health for quite some time now. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Joe Lavaca. Welcome to the Movement Underground Radio with your hosts, Mike Stella and Anthony Pranzo. What do high-performance athletes and people have in common? High-performance mindsets. We are here to take an underground look at the stories behind the athletes, therapists, trainers, and people who push their own limits so that we may expand our own. Take a deep dive underground with us in three, two, one. Um, And I'm really excited about today because I've been trying to track Joe down for like I don't know, like three weeks, we it's keep true. making a date, and then he's like, oh, I got this thing that popped up. Or um, Every time I schedule with you, I have 16 clients schedule virtual <laughs> sessions wish. with me. <laughs> I, <wish>. I know, right? <laughs> well, Joe, thanks, man, for coming down. It's, it's, we were just talking about how awesome it's been to interact with another human being. Right, right. No, thank you for having me and interacting with another person while still getting used to distancing, right? Because, I mean, we're Italian. We, we hug each other a right, lot. Yeah, I mean, very we're physical. always, like, on top of each mm-hmm. other at all these rock tape events. And, you know, to um, not be able to sit on your lap during this podcast is very frustrating Shh, for me. Joe, that was our secret, know, man. Gosh. <laughs> all the cats out of the bag. It's actually funny because Joe and I became fast friends. Uh, yeah. He was – so, you know, when I was onboarded as a rock tape instructor, one of the parts of the process is going and co-teaching and working with other instructors that are more seasoned. And Joe's been an educator for quite a number of years at this point. And so I was lucky enough to get to tag along Joe for, for a course um, early in my rock tape experience. And we became fast friends, but it seems that we only really hang out in person unless we're traveling a thousand miles or, you know, an economic collapse and shutdown. Yeah, and, I think that's the first time we're actually seeing each other in New York. This is the first time we're seeing oh, outside sorry. of that course. Second time because we were in Brooklyn that one time. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Okay. Second, so second time. time, even though Joe lives in New York as well, and we're yeah. you know only like thirty minutes away from each other, which in New York means like two hours. We've hung out in Mexico the same amount of times we've hung out in New York. <laughs> hey man, take me back to Mexico, right? <laughs> Unbelievable. Um, and so part of the reason, besides the fact that I get to see Joe and have my friend here and actually use the studio the way it was designed, which is to have some face-to-face contact and uh, get to see the expressions on your face and, and, and interact with you in that way. But I was excited to bring Joe on because Joe has a really unique insight into really the science behind the art of being a good clinician. That's kind of the way that I look at you know, when we talk about the biopsychosocial model and really the psychosocial side um, per, in particular, like so somebody's emotional experience, their conscious experience of, you know, where their mindset is at throughout, wh- whether it's an injury recovery process or, um, you know, just interacting with a, a client-patient relationship, um, that they're 
that there is science behind that. It's not just like, oh yeah, you're really great. You're a people person. You're great with people, which is kind of like we we consider like deeming the art, right? Yeah, the sure. art of therapy, the art of training, like the art of coaching in, in a way. But there is a science behind that. I was so and and you are so eloquent in the way that you're able to talk about it that I really wanted to just spend some time digging deep into you know the other th- aspects of medicine that we are finding ourselves as an industry kind of forced into at this point. Definitely. But like this is something that you've been doing for a while or at least has been a, a, a topic of interest for you for Definitely. quite some time. Mm-hmm. So I would love to hear kind of your thoughts. Um, you know, and I've kind of started the last couple of podcasts like really just asking you like how you're maintaining the engagement with your patient and client base um, obviously in the, in the, in the landscape of dealing with coronavirus and being quarantined and social distancing. Um, but you've been doing this for a while, even beforehand. So I really wanted to see if we can pull some valuable lessons from you in that regard. So like, what have you been doing? Like, you know, from a tactic standpoint recently to maintain that engagement? Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, there was one question that I forgot, um, if I had read it somewhere or, or heard it. Um, but it was a question of, well, what would you have done with more time, right? And we always said that, like, before this pandemic, like, oh, if I only had more time, I, I would do this, this, and this, right? And now we're all faced with this problem of having the time or having our time kind of reshuffle a little bit. But overall, for the most part, a lot of people's lives, like my, me and you, we have all this extra time. So when you reflect back and you're like, wow, I'm one of those people who um, had their business shut down. I'm one of those people who can't get to the city. I'm one of those people this. I'm one of those people that. Well, what am I using now as a, as a positive way to say, okay, well, now that I have more time, hey, I really wanted to do more longer style videos for Instagram. I wanted to start doing more of a streamlined message rather than maybe be kind of scatter plotted all over the place with my social media message. I wanted to finish... Um, what really kind of put together the concepts or the story arc of, you know, trying to pay attention to people's emotions a little bit more. And I think that, you know, diving deep into this stuff over the last couple of years, and I really started because of Rockstock. Mm-hmm. And I, um, I picked up this, um, this uh, book recommended to me, I believe it was um, Behave by Robert Sapolsky. And he talks a lot about behavioral and effective neuroscience. And he's just such a great author. And he made like such topics that I still really don't understand seem enjoyable to read. And that kind of led me down this this path of like, well, okay, how much of our behavior is under our control at any you know given moment in time? What you know, what what is consciousness? What is subconsciousness? And then kind of simultaneously as I started reading a little bit more about that, our, you know, our company platform, Rock Tape, um, started putting together this course called the Movement Specialist and diving more and more into those um, details at, at, at length, right, right. With, with these courses. So it was kind of just a, a really interesting how all these pieces fell in together for me. But I always believed from, you know, my first job as a PT aide in Staten Island that, you know, when, when I was watching this guy, um, Ira Ryder, actually, and, you know, he's probably the first person that's ever shown me what physical therapy was. My mom went to him for some stuff, and then I went to him for some stuff. But every time I was there, this dude knew everything about everything, could talk to every single person, didn't matter your age, made everyone feel comfortable. And 
every every patient in there, even though they were in pain or some kind of you know struggling with some kind of issue, always had a smile on their face. And you know, from a from a very very young point, when I was probably fifteen sixteen, you know he you know he, he gave me a little head nod and he was like, hey, you know, you seem to really enjoy your time here. You know, you work real hard. You know, how about a how about an aid job? And I was like, yeah, I'd love that. You know, and then and then I think that you know it was uh, there's always good and bad. You know, as, sure. as is always with the nature of life, right? right There's right. never a trade-off with everything. So that was a that was also my first foray into like in network and and kind of thinking like, wow, like PT is actually really tough. I mean, it's like every 15 minutes, it's it's hard. I mean, but this guy's buzzing around and he's doing a hundred different things at the same time. And you know, then I went to school, and then school tells you, hey, like that's that's not how it's supposed to be. You know, you're you're supposed to have an hour with everyone, and you're supposed to get you know. Uh, you know, never deal with any problems with insurance and, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and all that other stuff. But in, in that time of school, though, they have so much to teach us that there's nothing ever about communication or it's just maybe like kind of like thought about on the side, like, hey, if I get a, if I get someone as great as Mike Stella to do my clinical internship with, well, wow, I'm going to get the clinical side of it. I'm going to get this side of it. But then I think you brought up such an awesome word in the intro was the, the art side, right? Right. Like I, you can know the notes of all the music and how to read music, but you still have to be able to play it to make a melody and turn it into an art form, right? So I think school is all about, hey, hey here, are the, here are the notes. Right. You Here's gotta, the technical skill. Yeah. Right. You got to read the notes. Now it's up to you to play the song. And I think that that's where it really kind of falls apart for a lot of students is that it's not the school's fault that they maybe feel underprepared. It's their experiences collectively, I think on their internships and a lot of people I've even worked with under my internships. Um, they basically use it as an eight week vacation, right? right. Which is not you know, what it's supposed to be. Right. Right. Um, you know, it's supposed to be like, you know, teaching and mentorship. Right. Free and help. Of, yeah, free, not, yeah, yeah. Not free help. Not free help. Right, yeah. Exactly. And I think that that's where too many people, start to even get into this mentality of feeling burnt out. And, and that goes on, on both sides. Cause now, you know, people are getting handed off to students. That's maybe kind of disheartening. Like right. when you're, 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 you're maybe a patient paying for a visit or you're using your insurance and blah, blah, blah. Right. So I don't know if there's a better way of doing it, but I think that, you know, in DPT school now, they, they're doing a lot more on like business stuff and how to run a clinic. Maybe, maybe that's the secondary stuff you can get outside you know, with, you know, a business course or something like that. But maybe we need to start really focusing on more of communication and understanding emotions and feelings and, and really just behavioral. Maybe the last semester is just behavioral science and trying to understand why it is people do what they do. Um, and for just for some reason, maybe from that, that initial encounter when I was in Staten Island um, to like just the books that I started really getting more and more interested in, it they just kept building on each other. And then I was like, you know what, I don't, I don't know if I hear a lot of people talking about this in particular. Um, Rockstock made me kind of start putting a pen to paper. And then, um, you know, as luck would have it, I mean, I got a lot of great feedback from that presentation that I did. It seemed like people really enjoyed it. Dude, it was it. awesome. I appreciate it. It was that. really awesome. I appreciate that. So um, I felt proud of it like when I was presenting it. And, and then I was like, hey, you know what? I think I want to make this now bigger because it was only an hour lecture. It was an hour lab that, you know, and you, you, you did the same stuff that right. we just kind of kept going over and over again. And I was like, well, what, what does this look like as a story, you know, as, as, a, as a long arc or as a, you know, how do you make people think about emotions or consciousness and then break that into a lab, you know? Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's, the, that, that's the hardest. I think that was the hardest thing for me kind of making this transition. But now... Um, 
you know, going into this telehealth world, that's kind of where I think most of us are are needing to fall back to as having that as a skill set. And I think that's what makes a lot of people nervous about the telehealth world too, is that, hey, or I- Or like I, push back against it because you're- oh, Right. I'm seeing this kind of dichotomy happening on social media where you have- you know, maybe a, a contingency of therapists, and again, from multiple backgrounds, it's not just PTs, but like any kind of health, physical medicine, you know, um, healthcare provider, where you're like, oh, telehealth is great. You see, we could do all these things without in in person visits. And then there's the other side of the community, which is maybe more manually based, that is like resistant or like fearful of this yeah. transition because it. It, it, it's change, right? And, and and again, change is neither good nor bad. It is what it is, but it's how you adapt to that. You know, the, one of the things that you said that I that I was immediately thinking about was how when when it doesn't matter if you're in in DPT school or athletic training or chiropractic or massage therapy or even an MD program, we we get taught this idea that a human being can be divided into all these subsystems and that. If you're a physical therapist or an athletic trainer or whatever, you are primarily responsible for the physical being, right? The actual hardware of a human body. But the really effective therapists, I I find, are the ones that are really good at the other side of the coin, which is getting people to believe that they're going to get better, Mm -hmm. getting people to buy into the process. And I owe, you know, one of the themes in my social media over the years that I'm really proud of is talking about buy in. And the way that I use manual therapy is a way to get people to believe in the process Mm -hmm. because there's an interaction there. There's a connection there. It's like, hey, you know, like when you physically put your hands on somebody, now I'm using a physical connection to bridge an emotional and social connection. Mm -hmm. Um, But now we're faced with this environment or this landscape where that isn't as possible because we can't have physical contact right now with people. Um, and so maybe some of those soft skills, we call it, are are becoming more and more prevalent or more important in telehealth and your ability to communicate and get people to make those decisions on their own, right? And right. so, like, what would be, like, is that what you're, you're seeing as well is, uh, you know, like, so that's kind of like how my mind goes about it is like, we're taught to divide everything into into separate systems. We're primarily responsible for the physical, mechanical being. But in order to make an effect on that, you have to have those other things in place. True. And I think that, you know, part of the things that I have always questioned is, is the, is the mind and the body actually separable? Or are they one and the same thing? I mean, I think that the, the more we keep pushing the body into separate systems, I think the more we're kind of seeing the methods collapse or not hold up, or maybe that's why, you know, me and you take a course on vision one weekend, and then I take a course on um, uh, the knee another weekend, then I take a course on um, strength and conditioning another weekend, because everything is so separate and linear, and not enough things are, are bringing all these ideas together. Because the idea of like, look, I think that from if you're a manual therapist, or, you know, even massage therapists, and we've had a lot of those people um, in those professions who rely on those skills come into our virtual webinars that, that we're offering, right, on rock tape and stuff. Um, I actually tell them that this is the time where we, as maybe a profession, need to lean on you guys the most. And I'll tell you exactly why. Because you practiced mindful treatments, you gave yourself to someone for 30 full minutes before. 
you gave yourself to someone for an hour before and in a dark, intimate room if you were a massage therapist, just you and them, that would make a lot of people uncomfortable. Well, guess what? Now, that's what we're all faced with. You're, you're in a box with someone. You're in your own home. You're inviting a person into your home now. Right. And you have to give them yourself for 30 or 60 minutes. So I would love it if more manual therapists, instead of you know trying to promote manual therapy, start taking, hey, here's how you could be mindful. Here's how I've trained my mind to be fully devoted to someone because it is a different type of fatigue. It's a different type of skill. Right. And if you were a, a, a therapist that relied a lot on, you know, maybe just exercises or movements or whatever, I think you might have a harder time filling that gap or maybe you're putting too much exercises together now for people because you're just like, okay, cool. Now we can do this and now we can do this and now we can do right, this and now right. we can do this. And it's too scattered rather than just taking the time to sit and listen and actually think and reflect. And I think that manual therapists and massage therapists have always done that. And they've always thought about the whole person in some way, shape, or form. But now I think that they feel like because that the, the way that they were doing that was with their hands through physical contact, there's not another way to do it. But And I think that's why that this is why I fell into that com communication thing so much too. And we were just talking before um, the show started about almost maybe using the manual stuff as a diagnostic or it was a way to establish buy-in and, and things like that. But now right. can, in some way or form, can we still establish those same principles, um, getting buy-in and, and conscious thinking through communication? I think we can. And can we still use position, patient position or repetition of movement to establish, hey, is there a, you know, active motion restriction? Is there a passive motion restriction? I mean, can, can some, uh, if, uh, if you're quarantined with someone, can they come over and, you know, lift your arm? Does that feel better? Um, right. Can you lift your other arm? Does that, you know, does that feel better when you do it or have some assistance, you know, like, so I think there's always ways around it, but I think that we're, um, the manual therapists and massage therapists are undervaluing themselves right now and how incredibly, how much of a gift they could bring by teaching people mindfulness, Sure. you know, throughout an entire session. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like everything about that environment is set up to promote that wellness feeling, right? And so essentially, regardless of your profession, that's what we're trying to do is promote wellness, promote somebody taking some autonomy or taking some ownership over the things that they can control and make those better decisions with that information. And obviously, we're ultimately all trying to educate people. But I think, like I said, where people are feeling fearful right now, at least on the healthcare side of the coin is, is the fact that all of a sudden the emphasis is on what I can't do versus right. what you can do. Right. Um, and, and maybe there's just a loss of translation in what you can do where you're, you're still trying to like operate by the same rules that we were when we were in person, but maybe that's not, it's not translating for you for in a virtual setting. Right. Um, but what are some of the things that you like you look for? Like, you know, in terms of like the psychosocial side, like, if we're saying like, okay, biopsychosocial, for those of you guys who don't know, this is a, a model of approach in healthcare where we consider more than just like the meat vehicle, right? Mm -hmm. Where it's not just a bunch of tissues in front of us. It's a human being, right? And there's a psychological component and there's a social component and there's a biological component. And all of these things are inseparable. And, and what we've, what, at least in my opinion, what our healthcare system has done is kind of predicated this whole idea of breaking everything down into really specific parts so that we all get to be an expert at something. Yeah, sure. Right? And so that's how we 
you know, funnel people through the system is based on anatomical landmarks of, okay, oh, you got a foot problem, so you can go see your podiatrist, right? Mm-hmm. And we, we do it this way so that there's expertise, which is great, but it kind of gets us further and further away on the other side of that coin, which is it gets us further away from the truth that, that we're, it's one inseparable being that how you think about stuff makes a difference. How you feel about stuff makes a difference in, you know, your prognosis, regardless of whatever issue that you have, whether it's a physical limitation or even like an illness or a chronic disease. Um, so, you know, with that being said, if somebody is like, man, I'm really great on the physical side, but like, I don't know what to recognize maybe because there is a science to that. Mm -hmm. Like, what would you say to that person? Like, what, what are some of the takeaways that you've come across your research on emotion and emotional states and how that, and how that, um, plays out in, in somebody's movement, let's say, or their pain perception or any of these other things that we look at as biomarkers for change. Right. I think that, um, you know, if, if I'm just thinking about establishing uh, a relationship with a new patient first, like in some that I don't know or sure. just transitioning to telehealth Perfect. and everything, yeah. right? Um, number one, I think that I, I need, they need to understand, I think, why they're seeking these services, right? So what is their main goal in coming to work with you? Um, I always like to get that up front, like right off the bat. A lot of people, and I'm sure like this isn't new to anyone, want to know like, hey, why do I hurt? Like, why am I in pain and, and what can I do about it to try to, like, fix it? Um, what we do, I think, as therapists all the time is we use substitution. And this was like Daniel Kahneman thing where you're asking me a very complex question that I don't know if any one of us can actually answer. So what I do is I answer a simpler question. Well, I don't know why you're in pain because pain is a very complex phenomena, but I know your hip doesn't work in external rotation. So we're going to build that instead. Right. And I just substituted your answer of why am I in pain to a body part that doesn't move well. Right. So I think that when people are reflecting on pain, the first thing from a telehealth standpoint or maybe emotion standpoint is why is this emotional feeling bad? Because we're bombarded with feelings all day long. Me and you are having feelings right now. We're having uh, a, a, an interoceptive way, like the way that you feel about your own body. And that could be affected by a lot of different things. Why is pain the bad signal that we need to constantly get rid of? Or is that it's some kind of damage indicator or anything like that? Because we don't have evidence on that. We don't have evidence that... Uh, you know, the higher the pain, the bigger the problem. Right. Or when you get a five out of 10 pain on Wednesday and you only had a two on Tuesday, your disc is twice as herniated as it was the day before. So there, there's nothing really correlative to pain because it's so subjective. And when we tie in the whole biopsychosocial concepts of, you know, pain being an emotion, pain being a sign of your well-being, pain being linked to physical relationships, pain being linked to work. Oh, then it's also linked to the number six. So now it's also just a a number. It's a random number with no meaning. Like if I walked up to you and I just said seven, you'd be like, what the hell are you talking about? (laughs) So, you know, but that's what we try to do now as as healthcare providers is basically say, hey, you're in pain. It's like, yeah, I know. How much pain? Zero out of 10. And people are always going to answer in the limiters that you give them. Right? right. So if you ask someone zero out of 10, they give you a number between zero out of 10. The joke I make as a physical therapist to, to other PTs usually is that, well, 
we're really not asking for zero to 10, right? We're really more asking like four to nine because if you're below four, we know that's not allowed, right? right. From an insurance standpoint and you can't be 10, right? So really, even if someone was going to give you an honest answer and say three, you'd be like, okay, you know, well, what about at worst? What about like real bad? What right. about like the real bad time? You know, like <laughs> I came over, I punched you in the <laughs> knee while you were squatting. What about that? Would that go to a four, maybe a five? And they're like, yeah, maybe it would. So you, we prime people too to kind of have certain answers. When you start to get into the emotional side of things, you need to ask more open-ended questions, right? So people come to you with a complaint. I have shoulder pain. Your question needs to be, why is your shoulder pain concerning to you? Right. What is that? What is missing in your life because you have shoulder pain? So what? I had shoulder pain the other day. I had too many push-ups. Right. Right. But, you know, I gave my shoulder pain a meaning because I did too many push-ups. And I think that's what we do with emotions, right? If, you know, what time is it right now? Around 1130? I'm starting to get a little hungry. My stomach's starting to, you know, growl. I'm feeling like a little nauseous. But I don't run and go take my temperature, right? Right. I go run and make myself a turkey sandwich or I order pizza or I do something like that to fill this feeling. But now, you know, and and, uh, this was... Uh, uh, something I did on Instagram the other day is that once your concept changes about your emotional feeling, like now maybe coughing or now maybe a fever, it's not because of seasonal allergies. It's not because of a cold. It's because you might have come in contact with coronavirus. Now I need to self-quarantine for 14 days. Now that same feeling I've given completely different meaning to. Right. Right. And that's what people do a lot of the times with pain, especially if you're an athlete. When people come and see us, that's not the first time in their life they've ever been in pain. But it might be the first time in their life that they've given pain a negative connotation because of all these other experiences that have built up. So what is the concern of that person is a more open-ended question. Right. right. Um, what, um, what would they be doing in their life without this shoulder pain, right, is it more of an open-ended question potentially. What has been their experience with pain thus far? Like what has been, like, did you, what was the worst thing that's ever happened to you? Was it a paper cut? Or was it the time you gave birth? And this is why, you know, and I don't know if you'd agree with this, but working with females, females seem to have such better pain tolerance. Oh, absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Um, especially if they've gone through the birthing process, right? And, and not, uh, countless females have, have always been like, yeah, you know, it's, it's fine. You know, it is what it is. And I've had guys do breathing and spasm on the table, right? right? You know, doing deep breathing work, you know, and they're just like, hey, I can't do this, you know? So, you know, there is an evolutionary, like, thing to that for sure, right? Right, right. Um, but, you know, I think it's, it's, it's also an interesting social commentary as well. So everyone's going to draw from their past experience. If you've given birth, well, hey, that, that is the worst pain you could ever potentially have from what I've been told. Right. Um, I will never have that experience. But so now I go back to, I broke my wrist a couple times. Um, yeah, that's had, like your barometer, right? Yeah. Or that's like your, 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 the baseline point is right. really experience-based. I mean, just a quick story. When I blew my knee out in high school, I, 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 vividly remember everything about that experience like like going down the the fear the concern the like everything slowed down almost like time was just like crawling by i don't remember being in pain i I, I, and i remember saying like it doesn't really hurt that much i just can't move it Mm -hmm. and that's you know concerning to me sure sure turned out i blew out every ligament in my knee but like prior to that i really hadn't had any serious injuries outside like bumps bruises you know cuts you know that kind of stuff like i never had a serious joint injury 
And then ever, and like in my experience after that was, you know, all like anytime it came to playing sports or doing stuff, my knee hurt. Right. Like I would have, I would have to fight through pain, through pain to, to do whatever it is that I was trying to do. And it became this thing where I was fearful of it. Mm-hmm. And I, and I would avoid doing certain things because I knew it would hurt me, you know, and then, you know, 10 plus years later, I realized, wow, I really kind of created almost this self-fulfilling yeah. prophecy of believing that it was going to hurt me, believing that it was damaged, that it was a limiting factor, and therefore I should go out of my way to avoid or protect it, um, and which is almost, you know, making that whole process almost worse. You right, know? right. Believing is feeling. Absolutely, yeah. And we use that as our barometer for how we're doing, but it's not actually a reflective state of our body, right? And... You know, as, as we're going into these like more open-ended question ideas, right? Not giving people rate limiters, right? If I was in your body, what would I be feeling is, is another one of my favorite questions. I stopped asking about numbers years ago. And then it's, it's so interesting when people would look at me and then say, I don't really think I can describe it, right? Because no one's ever asked me, you know, outside of a number, Right. Or like, or, or give me like, it's a dull ache, it's a this, it's a that. So I would just, you know, pick dull ache or this or that. And those are my three options. Like I wouldn't create, most of the time patients don't create another word. Like it's like, um, you know, um, some kind of depressive, heavy sinking feeling in my elbow. They'd be like, oh, it's a dull, yeah, it's a dull, whatever. Right. So right, they're using language that they've been already exposed to, to describe exactly. pain in some way. Exactly. So like you say, like, oh, circle the following. Is it dull, achy, sharp shooting, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah. burning, tingling or yeah. numbness? Like, yeah. and so you're like, okay, it's one of those three categories as if that's the extent of what you can experience. Right. 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 So now when you take those things away and you make a person say, okay, well tell me how, you know, what would I feel if I was in your body? And it's, it's awkward for them to do that. It's, it's kind of like, well, uh, geez, I don't really know. I guess you'd feel, um, I feel, um, and then that's when they start to use these words that are more associated with valence, which is kind of a, um, a gauge of wellness and kind of overall, like, just like your arousal level, like that's when people might say, well, I guess I kind of feel like depressed because of it right now. Depression is treated way differently than a five out of 10 shoulder pain. Depression comes back into more of the social connection. Now maybe they're depressed if they're in CrossFit because they're not in the group class anymore. And that's what always made them feel well. Right. So when they say they're fearful, right? Okay. Well, fearful, right? Is also, I think an improper term based on what I've been reading because fear is an extrinsically oriented stimulus, right? Like I could be fearful, right? that you take out a knife and stab me in the chest right now, right? Because I can't control that. Right. So something external in your environment. Right. And then fear, right, for the most part, makes you change your environment. Well, if I really didn't trust you, I wouldn't be here, right? If if you just came back from, um, you know, the grocery store and you're, like, coughing and sneezing into your arm, I'd be like, hey, Mike, maybe we should reschedule today, you know? But – you know, I'm, I'm fully trusting of you. I, I'm, I'm here, you know, whatever. I know you're not going to hurt me in any way, right? So I have no fear. But a lot of patients will say, I'm fearful of, you know, X, Y, Z. And I think the, the problem with fear is that it makes you change your environment or avoid that environment. Well, if I was fearful of coming here, I don't, I don't come here, right? If I was fearful of going to the grocery store, I'm going to order online. If I was fearful of this, I'm going to, you know, do something else. So there's a substitution of the behavior, what I think more people need to come to terms with is that whatever they're feeling gives them anxiety. And anxiety in our culture is a negatively associated word. 
So no, I'm not anxious. I'm not anxious. I'm, I'm scared, more scared. But anxiety makes you pause, reflect, and reframe. And that's what I think most people don't do enough with their own lives or their own discomforts or their own dysfunctions or anything else. It's not that, hey, anxiety falls on me potentially to think about what this means and how I can work around it. Fear means I can just do something else. And if, I, if I'm scared to run, I'm going to go bowl. Right. You know, if I'm scared to do that, I'm going to go do something else. And then now that, that fear avoidance behavior, right? And they, look at the fear avoidance belief questionnaire, the FABQ, fear avoidance. You avoid things that you're fearful of. You don't reshape them. You don't attack them. You don't load them. You withdraw from them, which right. makes perfect sense. But I don't think enough, you know, patients really look at that. So from a, from a movement standpoint or even a telehealth standpoint, when I ask patients, what have you been doing day in and day out to make your elbow, knee, or back feel better? Right? They usually don't have a plan. So they have this emotional feeling, and there's no plan to conquer that emotion. So imagine you got hungry later, and you were like, God, I have no idea what to do about this. Um, should I drink? Oh, no, that didn't take it away. Um, should I lay down, take a nap? Oh, God, that didn't take it away. Should I um, exercise? Oh, God, that just made it worse, right? So it's almost a mismatch to an emotional feeling or an emotional concept. And I think fear of the unknown is what makes people not load it or not move it or not do anything. But now you're not engaging that experience, right? You're not feeding that experience. And if you, you know, you go to sleep every day for hopefully now quarantine life, seven, eight hours, right? You eat multiple times a day, right? Unless you're practicing some kind of, even if with intermittent fasting, you're probably eating a couple times a day, right? right? Um, so we do all these different things to, you know, bring ourselves back to center. But then when people have pain, they're like, well, I did my exercises already. Yeah, I, I know. Yeah. So go do them again. That's, wh that's why I gave them to you. Is that every time you have that feeling, you have a way to combat it, confront it, and reframe it. Right. So when you're hungry again, you go eat when you have pain again. Yeah, you need to do the things that I'm giving you several times a day. And how often? I don't really, I don't know the answer to that. Right. So instead, what me and you do, oh, well, I'm going to answer that question with a strength and conditioning question. Probably two to three sets of 10, a um, couple times a week, right? Because I don't know how much you have to do it. Mm -hmm. Right. Because I don't know how often you have your pain. I don't know how often you feel depressed. I don't know how often you feel anxious. And even if it is, Hey, you're associated with depression. Well, guess what? You got to, you got to end up FaceTiming your mom or your dad or all those people in your life that, you know, you just, you didn't have the time to talk to before all quarantine started and just keep going through the Rolodex FaceTime as many people as you can to try to build that social connection, right? Take those online classes, um, you know, join a zoom group, you know, do something where you can still maintain that, right? But now maybe you have to do a zoom workout twice a day. I don't know. Maybe you have to call your mom three times a day. I don't know. Right. You have to be the you have to become understanding of that. And it's my job to lead you to your own realizations. Because if I give you the framework, okay, like this is, this is what the science says. I'm answering different questions. I'm not answering your question. So I can give you this framework, this general arc of ideas. But now it's really up to you to now play, right? That, and that's right. where the play comes in um, and, and make it real for you. And I can answer every question that you have along the way. Um, here's what I want to know when we're doing this stuff, though. What's getting worse? Right? Are you losing function? Pain by itself. I mean, what? 
again, what would you give pain as a coach or an athletic trainer? If someone's just like, Hey, I have pain. Uh, maybe I should sit out the next six weeks. Like, no, you're looking for something like swelling for redness, right? For signs for of trauma, signs of Some, anything, right. right? Like, Hey, you know, coach Mike, I, that you I, might be at higher risk yeah. of, of hurting yourself if we continue to right. do what you're doing. Right. So right. like, you know, like think about like, like you, you mentioned your, your acute care course that you're putting together. Right. I mean, at, at a moment of time out of an acute injury, when there's swelling and this and that, I mean, are you really worried about what that person thinks about their love life? Or, you know, are they going to be able to go to church that weekend? You know, maybe, you know, again, that's something down the road you need to talk about or find someone to help them with. But at that moment in time, that's not important because you have right. tissue trauma here. We have cellular changes happening and we need to do our best to either quell those cellular changes from being coming too rampant or, you know, make sure we're now dosing it and taking advantage of the environment so that way you can recover as quickly as you possibly can. Exactly. And look, and, and pain is just a normal part of the process. You know, pain is 100% normal. And I think that what a lot of us have done as a profession is, you know, turn it into this billions and billions of dollars of industry, you know, like, like everything else, you know. And I think the more that we can realize that these are normal, natural occurring things, the more you kind of feel like you're not broken, Right. right. Because I think everyone kind of always comes in to see uh, me in the clinic and they always thought of themselves as broken. I'm weak. Uh, I have no mobility. Uh, I have this. I have that. And kind of like, again, blaming themselves. And look, I, and I always tell people, look, if pain was as easy as you just getting stronger, why are you here? Right. Why, why would you not? In this day and age, why wouldn't you just Google hip strengthening exercises? You can do that. You can get stronger in eight weeks if you just Google hip strengthening exercises. So why are you here? You don't need me to get stronger. Oh, well, I need uh, my, um, you know, I'm so tight. My hamstrings are so tight. This is so tight. Oh, all right. Well, again, today's day and age. Why do you need me? Right? Why do you need me to show you what Google can show you? And I think that as technology becomes more abundant, and even now, like, could, could I mean, this happened 10 years ago. What would we have done with our clients, period? Oh, yeah, you for know? sure. Uh, I mean, uh, there's no, there would have been maybe no option back, you know, 10, 12 years ago, 15 years ago, whatever, right? It would have just been like maybe we phone call people. Right. And people, if you thought telehealth calls, FaceTime were hard. calls yeah, were hard. Seriously. You know, uh, yeah, seriously. Put the phone uh, next to you. Uh, I want to uh, hear your knee yeah, crunching. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you just put the phone right up to your kneecap and bend it a billion times. Uh, let's see if this gets better. Oh, God. You know, like leave you the phone next to your pillow at night so I can listen to you breathe. You know, like, <laughs> I, I mean, what are you going to be your assessments then, right? Um, but it's, it's kind of really interesting to think about that. But, you know, for as much as technology is going to help us and, and advance us, it's going to probably make us come back to being more human um, at the end of the day. I love that. You know? Yeah, no, totally. I mean, it's I, – I find myself, you know, faced with, you know, the limitation or, or not being able to do some of the typical things that I might do with somebody in a live session, asking better questions, mm -hmm. listening more having more conversations and more education. And again, I believe education is a huge part of that process. Definitely. And I know you do too, Definitely. but there, you know, there is obviously a subset of the, of the industry that's like, you know, still in that very mechanical mode. And, and again, not to say that, you know, again, if you're getting results that way, awesome, great. That's fantastic. But when you start to consider all these other things, the fact that this is an experience based emotional uh, process that it gives you opportunities to help that person in, in more ways than just physical. And so when you can layer those things together, it's like now you're even creating an opportunity for a better result for that person. You know what I mean? And, um, you know, it, it, it's interesting because you're dead on the money. Like people will, 
when you hear something like I get anxiety attacks or panic attacks, right? We demonize it. It's such a negative thing. And okay, what is a a panic attack? Well, a panic attack, as far as like what I understand is, is an extreme, basically neurological response or emotional response to maybe a really small stimulus, right? Mm -hmm. So that, that like reflection point isn't matching up, right? So it's a mismatch in Mm -hmm. the experience that you're having with the response, Right. And so kind of the same thing when we talk about chronic pain, right. And mm-hmm. in, in a very similar light is you're, you're having this painful thing occur and it's just kind of a, a response to maybe this internal environment. And if the physical things aren't making that change for you, then we have to start exploring some of these other reasons why the internal state might be the way it is and, and why you're having this chronic pain on the, on the other side of that equation. Definitely. Right. And so like I always tell people or, or athletes or clients I'm working with, is like, everybody's got a unique equation. Everybody's got the variables in their equation that my job is just to determine which of those knobs I'm going to start to turn and see what happens on the other side. So I'm a big like treat believer in treatment as a diagnostic tool, but even just like, Hey, if we sit down after that first evaluation and I give you kind of a framework around why I think you're having your issue and you can vibe with that and understand like, oh, that makes sense to me now. Beyond just educating, what I've done for you really is is take that response and I've kind of quelled a little bit because now mm-hmm. you're like not so fearful of what it means because you have maybe a an alternate understanding of what it actually means. Right, right. I mean, in an anxious brain, right, and, and using that term mismatch is that... There's always top-down processes, uh, processes and bottom-up processes when it comes to sensory information and movement and, and everything else, right? So a lot of things are predictive, and then some things we want to just be kind of reflexive and, and reactive to kind of certain environments, right? But in, a, in an anxious brain, that incoming sensory information is on overload, right? Where you're like, wow, I, I, I'm just like just processing this stuff so much, and then I'm having an, a, a, an equal and opposite reaction that's not maybe in tune to the stimulus. But even during an anxiety attack or a panic attack, that is your body's way of reestablishing your baseline, right? So it's every response you have is generated by your body to bring you back to a baseline. In a, in a chronic pain patient, you know, they may be more stuck in the past, not necessarily even what's going on right now in the moment. So there's this inability to kind of you know, predict what should happen or what could happen. Whereas in the anxious brain, maybe it's a bombardment of sensory stuff. And like now I'm giving all the sensory stuff new and different meanings and every, everything is usually bad. But with my chronic ebbs and flows, it's like, well, I've been fearful of this stuff so long that now I've just adapted my life or my behavior to do it this way instead. And, you know, what, what we were talking about too is that, look, rather you're you know, maybe in more of an anxious state or more of a depressed state or anything like that, nothing is going to replace the needs of the tissue from a physiological perspective, right? So if you do truly identify someone as having a weakness or someone as having an inflexibility or a mobility problem, well, talking it out in, in, in a podcast is not going to help them. Talking it out on a telehealth call is not going to help them. So they really need to actively, actively relearn that pain is okay, actively relearn how to potentially maybe use this joint in space again. And then that's all part of the part of the process. But it can't it's not gonna be a passive experience, you know, via talking and everything else, even though I think that's that's gonna set the stage for them to be consistent in their movement practices, right? So 
and, and I don't have better exercises than people. Like I don't have like one off telehealth calls and people are done and, and, and whatever. And I think that anyone that's trying to trick you into that is that's, that's nonsense. That's not right. actually what we want. I don't want a one off visit to get you better because I know that there hasn't been any neuroplastic change there. So we talk about, Oh, how long it takes tissue to adapt. Well, from a neuroplastic standpoint, it maybe takes even longer, maybe 12 to 18 months for you to really start to develop neuroplastic changes in your brain and, reframe your behaviors and your beliefs and your models and everything else i can get your knee stronger in eight weeks right but you know what unless you have that solid understanding of you know what my pain is and why it is this way and what i should look for and what might be noise and what might be signal uh, i talk a lot about that too with patients you're only going to give me eight weeks right and and that's not fair to me or you because you only give me eight weeks when now I have all this other science and data that says it might take 12 to 16 months, but now your doctor's also given you eight weeks, which is like painting yourself into a corner. Hey, you know, imagine this deadline too. You're gonna, you, now you've been stuck in all this pain. I have an option for you. It's going to be to cut you open or give you an injection or do something you know, internal, right? Whatever that may be, maybe even taking a pill. Um, uh, I'm going to send you to PT or to rehab for six weeks. Uh, come back, and if it's not any better, um, we're going to to go this route instead. Well, I tell patients, if you believe that, don't waste your time or your money here for six weeks because you are not going to be that much different in six to eight weeks unless you keep an open mind and then you keep your own checkpoints, right? And that's what the other thing with the telehealth calls is you have to keep your own checkpoint because I can take pictures of my screen and I can, you know, blah, 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 and look at your shoulder flexion and everything else. I need to know how you are going to gauge success and how you are going to look for you're trajecting in the right direction, right? Right, and then it, it can't. It, don't tell me. Don't talk to me about pain, right? Because pain is going to go ups and downs and ebbs and flows. And I'm sure if you journaled out 30 days of pain, your average number is going to be way lower than the number that you probably give me right now. So we let pain keep us in moments, right? And those moments just completely stop our movements. And those moments are really easy to remember. I mean, look, it's a lot easier for me and you to recall every negative, shitty experience that's ever happened to us. Totally. And that's an evolutionary gift and curse. Because if there was something negative that's happened to me or an injury that's happened to me, I want to learn as quickly as possible. I want to have my own storage and emotional connection to that. Right. So that way I'm never hurt again. Right. So it doesn't happen right. again. Exactly. Right. It's and that whole idea of using past experiences to help predict the future. Right. To mo and that's going to mold your decision-making process, whether you're conscious about it or not. Right. Right. For sure. Right. right. But, you know, and then the positive stuff, like, is just so quickly, easily forgotten. Right. And I'm sure you've had follow-ups with patients where it's like, hey, you know what? I felt really good uh, for a couple days. And then, you know, just last night. Um, you know, while I was washing dishes, that pain came back for a couple minutes. So, you know, I know we're not out of the woods yet. And it's like, wait a minute, I haven't seen you in five days. I haven't seen you in 10 days. And you're going to talk to me about five minutes over the last 240 hours. Right. Like, how does that make sense? Like, right. you know, patients aren't giving themselves the, the benefit of the doubt. And then I think that clinicians aren't allowing themselves the opportunity to be as successful as we could be by using an eight-week framework, by using this 10-week framework, by using this, by using that. Because I'll tell you this, if you think anyone's pain is truly connected to a mobility issue and you get the patient to believe that and they give you the 10 weeks, they're going to feel better because they got their better mobility, mobility. Right? right? In 10 weeks. If you, believe, if you convince a patient that their stuff is due to um, weakness, 
you know, and you're going to get them stronger over a three-month strengthening program or strength and conditioning program, they're going to give you that. So no matter what now, they're, they're establishing meaning to your treatment. We're, we're not able to answer it. We're just able to give them our opinions, right, on why you're in pain. This is why I think you're in pain. This is what I would work on. You got to give me 12 weeks. Okay, cool. If I did a good enough job listening and communicating and educating, you are going to give me that time. And now we're going to have a test to say, are we going in the right direction? If I, I do, that, you know, if I do a yeah. piss poor job and I'm like, okay, well, let's, I think it could be this. Let's, let's, let's start this. Let's see where we end up in a couple of days. Um, and then, uh, get back to me. Well, I, I'm not even giving myself enough time to let you be successful or to not be right. So I think, again, we got to rethink our frameworks of time. We got to rethink our framework of goal management. Um, and then really like get people to believe in like, Hey, look, I know this sucks for you. I'm here with you every step of the way. Right. Regardless, if you feel better in three months, awesome. If you feel better in three days, awesome. If you feel if you feel better, it needs to take three years. I am going to be here. I'm not going anywhere, right? And I will work my damnedest to make sure that you get to your goals. Because now, how many of us will also then have that that difficult patient, right? Which again is so easy to describe. Give, give me remember your worst patient right now, Mike. It's the worst. Give me, oh, I want their name, right. social security number, address. <laughs> I have one guy who has referred to me that that comes immediately to mind. And oh, I that's only it. Girls ever, are okay. Girls I only ever did it once, only one assessment with him. Um, it was a two-hour assessment because he was coming in from kind of far away. And he was like, uh, I want to spend all this time. I'm like, okay. And this guy had all the answers, right? Because he had seen 50 other people. He had flown to all of the best, like the biggest names in our industry. And somehow he got referred through referrals and he ended up here yeah and there was nothing i could do there was nothing i could say or teach him or ask him that he didn't have an immediate answer for where he already knew the outcome and i'm like i can't fill a cup that's already full right you know what i mean so what are you what do you need me to do and he's like i just need you to fix this because this is the problem and i'm like i don't know if i believe that that's your problem you know um and I just remember having like this, it was a two hour session that felt like it was eight hours yeah. <laughs> because I just, I, I couldn't get an, a word in, which is not usually an issue. I was like, okay, I'm just let this guy go. And, but there was nothing that he, oh, I've already tried that. Already tried that. Yeah. And everything is exactly like you said. He had timestamps for all the stuff. This doctor said it was going to take this long. And, and so like even our system sets us, can set people up for that kind of failure because they instill this belief that there's some kind of magical time window that's going to give us this answer and and it's and again like what you're saying is like this is totally non-linear right and it's it's so many systems at place at the same time like you said ebbs and flows like you you know and i tell people like listen you're gonna have good days and bad days like you have to understand that that's part of this process and that doesn't mean that you're not getting better right 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 it it, it just means that that you know take a note when you when you and i this is a drill that i have people do and when you are experiencing pain for whatever reason, if, especially if it's intermittent, like it comes and goes and there's no, like take a moment, pause. What's going on? Right. You know, what's going on in your immediate environment? What's going on in your internal environment? Mm-hmm. Did you just get in a fight with your husband or your significant other? Right. And all of a sudden now you're agitated and, and oh man, my freaking shoulder hurts again. You know what I mean? Yeah. Now it's yeah. like, oh, you just like a lot of people just are waiting or living, waiting for that other foot to drop. Definitely. And so that's what they're recognizing, right? As soon as it happens, they re- like you're saying, they recognize that negative experience immediately because they're looking for it. Of course, yeah. Because that, we're setting them up to believe that that is the experience that's the marker for change. Right. 
And that's the that's the problem with consciousness is that it sucks. <laughs> it's right. not that great. It's right. honestly not that great. Like I can only do maybe two tasks at a time, right? Where I can devote my time and attention to listening to you and speaking to you, right? That that's number one where all my conscious energy is going right now. Right. I can maybe think about one or two other things like, oh man, how am I gonna, you know, what do I gotta do later when I get home? You know, something like that, right? But this is also why you can't read a book and listen to an audiobook at the same time, right? This is why you can't read two pages at the same time, even though they're visually in front of you. So our conscious experience is very limited and the conscious experience is cortical. Right. So it's it's the entire map that becomes integrated. So now if I have my entire map integrated on my... Can you expand on that a little bit? What do you mean by the entire map? So For somebody who doesn't maybe like who doesn't jive or hasn't dug sure, su definitely. super deep into this. So yet. Fr from a standpoint of n uh, the neurons in our brains, right? We form these connections, which trigger behaviors and thoughts. And it's all where sensory processing again, from the top down, bottom up is kind of occurring. And so if we have information that goes through our spinal cord to the thalamus, the thalamus is like a relay station for our brains. And that basically tries to process all this incoming information and say, okay, this, this incoming information is going to go to your prefrontal cortex for decision-making. This information is going to go to your uh, visual cortex. This information is going to go here. This information is going to go here. When we are operating subconsciously, we're operating at a level where all of these systems are kind of running in place without us paying attention to them. So I usually say like heart rate and breathing, right? right. When, you know, it's a good thing I don't have to think about keeping my heart pumping because I wouldn't ever be able to walk if I had to consciously focus my heart on pump, pump, relax, pump, pump right. relax, right? Now, what I could do is because that's a subconscious process though, if I just paused... I can bring my conscious awareness to my heart rate. Right. Right. So now, but that takes a lot more processing. So I have all these circuits subconsciously running at all times. Now I can bring anything into that connection by establishing a full network of connectivity in my outer layer of my brain, which is responsible for a lot of the processing and decision-making and things like that. Right. Right. So I can make any experience subconsciously become more conscious. But when I think about the pain thing and the BPS thing, well, now my psychosocial concepts of pain will bleed right into or tie into the next um, area in my mind that also establishes physical pain. So now all of those concepts and categories start to drive together, right? And then now they become one circuit. So now my brain doesn't tell the difference between physical pain, social pain, or emotional pain because they're all the same thing in the circuitry of what's going on. So now if I have any one of those things that can light up my subconscious network, well, now I have any one thing that could illuminate my whole conscious field. So when I'm in constant pain, like a lot of our patients would tell us, what, what I'm kind of hearing is that your consciousness is focused on this incoming signal. And I think that's what makes it really hard for people to make decisions. And that's what makes it really hard to you, for you to want to go out. And that's what makes it really hard for you to want to play with your kids and cook dinner. Because your conscious experience is focusing on one signal all day long, right? Now, imagine I was trying to pay attention to my heart rate talking to you while I'm driving. Well, now I missed the red light 
because I don't have the, 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 the enough processing to do this all at one time. So you're talking about this whole concept of like what fires together, wires together. So For if sure. your experience is such that you're, again, whether you're consciously doing it or not, experience these thing these things in tandem at the same time then those things become wired together as such that any number of things that would trigger that response are going to then lead to that outcome mm -hmm. of oh i'm experiencing pain now because right. i've wired my brain to fuse these different things together right and then the consciousness circuits are you know temporary as as well they need to be for survival right if there was a, a loud explosion outside both of our conscious attentions would whip to that direction assess the threat and then do I need to change my behavior or my environment right away? So now, you know, maybe the, the manual therapies or the things that we do at Rock Tape, right, are temporary ways to distract your brain through proprioception or positive incoming information. But it doesn't mean that the pain loop becomes deactivated. Quite the opposite. It's just subconsciously suppressed as your brain's now focusing on this new thing, which I think is why, um, you know, so many of these different um, you know, systems of approach work so well, like all the neurology stuff, right? right. V you know, visual training for pain and this and listening training for pain. It's just because if I'm going to take in your conscious attention from somewhere, I have to engage your entire cortex. So if I give you, you know, this to look at over here, and this is what you're focused on, well, if I present something shinier in this direction, something new for you to pay attention to, well, this is going to suddenly become not as important because I have a new goal over here. Right. But that doesn't mean this goes away. Right. And now when this drops away, I come back to that, right? And now I'm back in pain. Now I'm back thinking about it all the time. So the fire together, wire together is always what gets the most press, but the things that fire apart, wire apart. So the same way that you, you've connected those dots is the same way that you can break free of them. And that's why I tell patients, look, like from a, from a neuroplastic type of thing, um, that could take 12 to 18 months. I mean, think about even how we, we try to assess other behaviors, AA, NA, right? I mean, you're going, you get a chip after three months you know, of, of like being sober right. for 90 days or, or staying away from drugs for 90 days. But how many of those people fall back into a relapse because – the circuitry is there and always will be there, you know? So, and, and, and people want us and our exercises to fix them in, you know, one session, eight weeks, right. 10 weeks, and then never have to go do it again. Well, if you, if you don't keep redirecting your consciousness, well, you're going to go back to the same circuits because those are what your baseline like was. Like your default settings yeah, are. That's right. your, like that's a default your, setting on a computer, you're just going to go right back to it. 100% because that's what's the easiest thing for you to resort to. I don't, I don't need to think about going back to default mode, right? And just think, like you mentioned the computer, right? If, if you told Apple, go back to your factory settings, boom, two seconds, wipes it back out. Now think about how long it would take you to re-download every single program, right. every single app, right. arrange everything, pull stuff from the To cloud, get it exactly the way it is now. Right? right? And now how defeating is that for someone who's been in pain, right? Oh, shit, I got to start all over again because of that one signal that comes back and I don't understand it. So now, yeah, Mike was a nice guy. I'm going to go try Joe. Right. And Joe was a nice guy, but he talked a lot about the same stuff Mike did. And, you know, I don't know. I just didn't like him as much. So now I'm going to go to Wendy. And Wendy was okay. Now I'm going to go to Courtney. You know, and now you, you're hopping around. And I think every time you hop around, it also puts a lot more stress on the newest provider. Right? Sure. Like, wow, you saw all these great That's people. That's exactly that my, my story. Yeah. You know, like he'd seen like all the people that I read and I right. look up to and I'm like, 
I don't know if I have anything to add that right. you probably haven't heard already. Right, right, right. You know, and then, he was and looking for a different answer. Right, for because sure. The things that those other providers had done didn't work, quote unquote, didn't right. work. Right, and I think that's what people need to be, even as practitioners, the, the answer that, that the question that people are coming in for needs to try to be the first thing that we we answer, or if, or we need to be upfront about it. Like when people are like, "Well, I want to know why I'm in pain." My usual answer when I start recapping the visit for them is, look, I don't know why you're not why you're in pain, right? And I've seen people over the last 10 plus years that have really shit mobility and they're not in pain. Right. And I've seen people really strong and they're in a lot of pain. And I see people that don't work out and they're fine. And I've seen people that are in all these groups and teams and they're really depressed. So I don't know why, right? And I think it's all based on you know, the previous experiences that you've had. But that's why I think even in the telehealth world now too, is giving up, you know, your your, your um, ability to be the director of the visit. And I think the patient now has to be the leader of the visit. And we follow suit by, you know, kind of asking them the questions that we're, we're trying to understand, right? Yeah. You know, like, hey, I, know, I understand what's important to you. Um, l- let me try as best as I can to explain you know, based on what I know and my experiences, right? I'm always, always preface that too, because this is not just because I speak, it doesn't mean it, make it fact, right? Because right. I can read a book tomorrow and be like, ooh, damn, I really don't mess that presentation up. Or even know? just like, you know, like as you learn more, you're like, wow, okay, like I can make this better. It's Definitely. not that your prior versions of yourself were wrong necessarily, but those decisions were impacted by the information that you had who at that period of time. time. Who you were right. at that period of time. Right. Um, so let me ask you this, Joe, like, for that patient who, again, and, and I think part of the, and what you're talking about is amazing, and it's important for people to consider, especially people who are in pain or dealing with some kind of issue. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be a mental health issue or an, a behavioral issue. It doesn't really matter what it is at that point. But because our system is so, has basically conditioned people to look at our healthcare model and say, okay, the answers lie within right? Mm -hmm. Which from what I'm getting from you is like, eh, not exactly how that works, right? This isn't exactly how it works. And your doctor said, yeah, just rest it for six weeks, but I'm going to go ahead and say that that ain't going to do shit for you. Right. We know that, but doc said so, but doc said, Joe, what do you say to that person? Um, I, I think that, I think that what I usually would say to that person is, is based on the setting that I'm in and the setting that the doctor's in, right? Um, who did a more thorough evaluation or assessment with you, right? And and I'll, and I'll just kind of kick it back to them and be like, a lot of the complaints I've had about doctors in the city, and I guess maybe doctors in general, because then I make these open-ended jokes when, when I'm teaching around the country and everyone kind of awkwardly laughs. So it just makes me assume that everyone's kind of dealing with the same thing, is that, that you know, they, they'll wait there for two hours, three hours, four hours, five hours, whatever. And then they're like, okay, I only saw the doctor for like five minutes, right? He did like a quick exam or usually it's like a quick exam or or maybe a quick subjective. Like, okay, all right, cool. And then without touching them, send them for an x-ray. Right. Right. And and I've been a part of, you know, that as well. Like, oh, okay. You know, Mike, you having some knee pain. All right, cool. Uh, fall. All right, we're gonna get an X-ray. We're gonna follow Susan. Yeah, She's yeah. gonna take you down and get an X-ray. Yeah, and then, and then uh, uh, you're yeah. gonna wait another 45 minutes here for me while I go the rounds again, and then I'll come back to you. So, uh, you know, what what I try to communicate with patients without you know making them feel like they wasted their time there was, well, just look. You know, I think that they did a great service for us because they sent you for the X-ray, uh, they sent you for the MRI, they did whatever they did in house, and they didn't deem they didn't see any red flags, right? 
So maybe what they heard at the time was, you know, you had some knee pain and you were, you know, just living your life and it still hurts. So usually the first thing for an inflammatory condition is rest, right? And I think that, you know, for the, for the most part, if you and me fell and broke our ankle right now, uh, or I broke my ankle on the way out, my first thing tonight wouldn't be to like, to just call you up and be like, Hey Mike, can you send me a plyometric progression that I can start working on like right, right now? Exactly. It would be like to honor the, the healing process in some way, shape or form. And I would say to them, well, you know, I think the good news is, is that your body's probably already done a lot of that for us. So from a rest standpoint, we've done our evaluation now, right? We know there's nothing significant in the x-ray that Where we're worried about. would need a cast yeah. or something right. like that. We did our assessment. We didn't notice any range of motion restriction or any swelling or any bruising or overt tenderness or you know anything like that. So I did my red flag kind of screening, which I think really as a healthcare provider is my, my best tool, right? Screen for things that I yeah rule out rule stuff out, that's right yeah what, what's the most serious thing that this could be and let's get that off the table and then what I'm left with is usually well you gotta you gotta do more right I mean like we know it's not broken we know it's not this we know it's not that you, you gotta just use it now you right. know and I think that um, what I what I always tell them is that you know the, that the pain outcome measure itself is not a good outcome measure for us because you know, chances are you sitting here right now, not loading your knee, your ankle or whatever, you're probably feeling relatively okay, right? Like if I had to stop everything and say, you had to deal with this pain right now for the rest of your life, would you take it? And you know, most of the time people are like, well, yeah, I, mean, I guess I might take that yeah, deal. I might, I might take that deal, right? You're saying like at the worst I'd be in a three right now. Like, All right, I'll take that three for the rest of my life, not to get to a seven, right? right. So if we only rely on that, again, we're, we're, we're not really assessing the capacity for you to be a better human. Right. right. And I think that that's why you come to see me is so that I can make you a better human at whatever activity you want to do, whether that's squatting, whether that's running, whether that's this, whether that's that. And we can do all those things together if we have a more objective outcome measure. So rather than just rest it and just let pain be our guide, why don't we use, you know, what's your first test going to be? Oh, I want to wake up in the morning without like, no. Yeah, what's the first win that's going to happen that's right. going to have you believe that you're making progress? Yeah. I, I liked what you said before, too, about like the whole screening process. Because what I teach and when I'm teaching Rock Tape or my course, even, or, you know, even how I explain it to patients is like, listen, you're coming, I'm doing this assessment with you. My goal isn't to be right at mm -hmm. the end of this, my goal is to be less wrong. Right. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah. And there's a big difference between those two things because 100%. when you say, like, this is the reason why, then you're like, you're pointing your finger at a certain thing. And so if we can make that change, that means everything's going to be fine. Well, that's not how it works. But if I can rule out all the things that it's not, right. it gets me to a point where now I have maybe a menu of, of a, and I call them linchpins. I call mm -hmm. them, you know, linchpins are the things that I say, you know, whether that's a physical standpoint or, you know, sometimes that linchpin is like, man, like I want you to take conscious control of your breathing three times a day. Yeah. You know what I mean? Give you something actionable to do, mm -hmm. but here's why I think that that's a linchpin for you. Right. And I think like I, that's what I'm trying to recognize when I'm evaluating somebody is where, what, what are the variables that I can start to make changes with? Um, because I think these are the ones that, might give me the big, the biggest change on the other side of that equation like we were yeah, talking about for before. sure. I mean, and if you look at guys like um, like Charlie Weingroff or Craig Levinson and, and, and Dan John and 
um, you know, all these people who practice like, you know, linearizations, um, not linearizations, uh, but like regressions and lateralizations right. and like, Hey, like, let's find your floor and let's find your ceiling. Like if we know deadlifting at 500 pounds is a thing that's been setting your back off. Well, I mean, can we work on some kind of hip dominant hinge pattern in a different way? That's going to keep you safe in training until, you know, this acute wave of pain subsides. And I think that, you know, that's what we have to be preaching a little bit more, which is why I love that what we can do campaign that, that we were doing with, uh, with with our rock tape team is that, you know, we're so often focused on the things that the, the patient can't do is that they end up not doing anything. Right. right? And, and this is which is worse than which is worse than the alter right. of maybe even doing too much. Right. And you know what I mean? The sad thing is like working with a trainer, working with some trainers in New York City and. Um, who most of them have been phenomenal, uh, and I've and I've written about them before, and I've posted about them before. And if you don't have a good athletic trainer or a personal trainer or a coach, do yourself a favor. It'll be the best gift you ever gave yourself. Just start working with them. If you're a PT or a Cairo or a healthcare professional, I mean that's my biggest message always to everyone: find someone who can really help you with skill and program development, because that is not necessarily a big PT Cairo strong point, you know, for for a lot of us. Um, but, you know, when I, when I see someone who comes in to see me from a trainer, or maybe I know them, maybe I don't know them. Oh, yeah, I've had shoulder pain for the last six weeks. So I'm like, all right, well, what have you guys have been doing for upper body? Oh, we, we stopped. Stopped right. upper body. Right. Like, what do you, how do you the classic st- answer. How do you stop working out upper body? Like, I mean, just because your shoulder hurts. I mean, did you forget about that your biceps and triceps are part of your arm? Did you forget that you have a chest? Did you forget that you have a, you know, a back? Did you forget that you have a, a wrist flexors and extensors? Right. Like, I mean, like, did, did you just neglect all that? Well, no, we've just been doing a lot of core and uh, lower body. I'm like, well, how are you doing your core without your arms anyway? Like, <laughs> what, what core exercise are you doing that involve like, no arm or limb movement? You know, and, and I think that, like, then it's like, well, let's reframe this again. You're here to see me after six weeks of giving yourself rest, of deloading. How'd, right. that, work, how'd that work out for you? Right, right. It didn't. So, so that's not your answer. So that's not your answer. Right. And maybe some of it is actually just maybe it is. There is something to be said for rest. And I, and I think that that's such an underplayed thing, which is probably a whole separate podcast conversation. Totally. There's definitely something to be said for rest. But then there's just something to be said for not giving every single pain a, me- a meaningful um, experience that it's bad, right? And I, and I always try to reflect that with a person. Now, if it's the same shoulder that's hurt you in the past, I, this is why it makes sense that you think that. But let's just say that you had that same type of pain in your bicep after your trainer or whoever put you through um, an arm beach arm workout. You wake up the next day and you're like, oh, Josh. That's my favorite trainer name. Josh, that was so great. My arms are killing me. <laughs> oh, I can't I'm so wait. so sore. I can't wait to get to the beach. The beach season. Oh, <laughs> now, oh, Josh, but Josh put something into my shoulder and my shoulder's killing me. No, now it's my rotator cuff. It's my labrum. It's my this. Josh, I told you that I had the shoulder thing. You told me this was going to be okay. And it's right. the same thing with back stuff too, right? I mean, oh, you know, like – um. I told him about my back pain and he said deadlifts were going to be okay. And I did the deadlifts. Now my back hurt. And I, and I look at them sometimes. I'm like, when I deadlift, my back hurts. Like, wow. When I go heavy, like what, where do you want force to start going? Right. right? I mean, like it's part of the problem. It's part of the sooner or later, like you can't eliminate, you can't eliminate your back from the squat or the deadlift. That's one of the main reasons I give people squats and deadlifts is to train and make their back stronger. So if you're taking away some of my, my two most favorite tools for compound movements, well, what are you hoping to get here? Like, right. what, what's going to make you stronger than 
a squat or a deadlift. Well, it's, yeah. and it starts to become like you know more of like that palliative measure, right? Yeah. So like the trainer gets a client that comes in and they're like, you know, I got this shoulder issue, and the easiest thing is to say, okay, we're just gonna avoid that. Yeah, we're just <laughs> not gonna do it. So don't worry, I'm your guy, but we're just not gonna do those things because yeah. you're scared. Yeah. Right. And like for me, it's like, and then people see us and like, okay, you know, Josh has got me covered. With everything else except for this right shoulder. So, Joe, I need you to do this right shoulder. Right. And it's like, well, like the same things that help the rest of your body are going to help that right shoulder too. It's just maybe reframing it in a way like, hey, let's, can we get you to have a non painful experience with the shoulder or a less or, or, or an experience that's, reasonable and livable like you said like right. if i can give you that three forever would you take it right, would you right, take right. that deal right, right, right. it's like let's make a deal but pain science version exactly um and so you know and, and maybe like the last topic that you know i'd like to maybe cover with you is like what are some of the actionable things that a clinician can do like given kind of the obviously the width of what you're talking about like what what are simple actionable changes that you might recommend to like a new clinician to incorporate a little bit more of like the psychosocial side or at least be more aware of it and, and, you know, like you said, ask open-ended questions. And I really, really love that. Like, I'm even learning for myself right now some strategies. But, like, what would the strategies be? Like, if you had to give somebody a, a few categories yeah. of things to look at. In the, in the simplest form, if you wanted to start to cover your bases or, or stack the odds a little bit more in your favor with any one person, just start asking more questions about um, sleep behaviors. Ask questions about nutrition. Ask questions about social support systems. Um... Uh, what they like to do for other hobbies, right? Things that they maybe have fallen out of. I had a woman in chronic foot pain the other day, and she was telling me how, um, you know, she hasn't. She's a songwriter too, and she hasn't written any songs in months. And I told her that, you know, what I would love her to do by the time we, you know, meet again, is just write a couple of lines of a song, just just two three lines. That's it. That was part of her homework with like ankle circles, right? Right. And it was just to kind of refocus her mind back to the things that she found important. And she's been so lovely to work with and treat because she's been through a lot of those providers and everything and podiatrists who keep wanting, you know, slam orthotics in her feet. Right. And, and she's time and time again told me that you're the only person that's looked at both my body and my mental state. And she's so appreciative of that. Did I cure her heel pain for, for 15 years in, in one virtual session or two virtual sessions? No. Um, will I? I don't know. And I don't know if I'm going to get her out of pain, especially in the time frame that she's hoping for, but I'm going to show up every, you know, every Thursday and do my hardest to, to try to help her as best as I know how. Right. So I call them typically like quarters, right? Make sure your patients are rolling their quarters, getting sleep, practicing good nutrition habits, like, you know, working on social support systems, because then all the other stuff, the nickels, dimes, and pennies, your alignment issue, your posture issue, that one muscle that's a little bit weaker seem to maybe matter a little bit less in the grand scheme of things, especially if your patient's dealing with chronic pain. And now you're really kind of getting the pendulum, you know, to swing more in your favor. Right. Um, so, right. you know, I always tell You know, like uh, what's one of the things I tell my students uh, is, you know, you, you can't out-treat the basics. Right. You know, so right. if, if you're, if that person's not sleeping, if they eat a crappy diet, if they're constantly stressed out at their job and you're trying to figure out which manual technique to use, yeah. you're just studying for the wrong test. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because you're just not going to fix that issue with your hands if, if you're having to climb this mountain on the other side to just, you know what I mean? Like yeah. it's just 
the basics play first. And, and even another thing that came to mind with, with what you just said is, you know, a lot of the people that'll come to me, I, I get a lot of clients who come to me after they've seen like a bunch of other people, which is typically the case. And I know that's the case for you too. And I'm usually the first person to give stuff back to them. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Where it's like, oh, it hurts when you run, don't run. But I'm, but what is that running? Again, we were talking about a movement or an exercise or an activity, but what does it really mean mm-hmm. to the you know, mid-40s, mother of three, you know, maybe whatever other issues she has in her life where that's the only time she takes for herself in a day. Right. Right. So taking that away from a biological standpoint, okay, we're going to rest and give these tissues time to calm down a little bit. And then we maybe you can reintroduce that load. But in the interim, what did we do for that psychosocial side? Like right. we took away somebody's coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. We took away somebody's ownership or autonomy of like, this was what makes me feel good. Right. I love that. And if you, you know take what I mean? away, if you take away something as a healthcare provider, you should always add something back, back right? Or so, on some level, right? right. Exactly. Definitely. So, you know, oh, hey, Jane, maybe, you know, that 10-mile run, you know, because I know at mile six, that knee starts really flaring up. But why don't you go for a three-mile run and then just walk mm-hmm. and, like, still be outside and still enjoy that scenic view on the boardwalk or whatever it is that you're doing yeah. mm-hmm. to take that time for yourself instead of just completely eliminating right. it altogether. And I tell people all the time, I, I hate taking stuff away. And... I will say that up to people on day one. I am not the guy that's going to do that for you. I even had one ultra marathoner who came to me and, and you know, she had a lot of other things going on and, but one, she wanted me to shut her down. That's what she, the answer that she came for was for me to say, you need to stop running for six weeks. And when I didn't give her that answer, she was very upset mm-hmm. to the point where she wrote this ridiculously long you know, piece on social media, on Facebook. She didn't mention me specifically, thank God, but like was really negative. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Um, Because like, how dare I tell her that, you know, like she should be still running, (laughs) you know what I mean? But again, it's, it's really interesting. And and it's, it's also speaks to the point that people also have to be willing to hear, you know, that something that is maybe not what they were expecting to come when they see a physical therapist, Sure, you know what I mean? And, and, uh, have you ever gotten kickback on that kind of stuff? Oh, definitely. I mean, yeah. I think, look, it just creates conflict, right? I mean, it's the what right. you want to hear and what you need to hear. And, you know, you a lot of patients, a lot of patients, I think, seek out providers until they find the thing they want, want to, to hear. hear. Right. And that doesn't that doesn't cause conflict any in their mind because they already have confusion or fear or anxiety or depression or whatever else. Now, adding another wrinkle to that, it, it, again, it, it's not you being combative or, or a shitty clinician. It's the fact that I think just as a person, you have to acknowledge that the time that you were told something that you didn't want to hear or that you that disagreed with your views and just go back to any relationship you've ever been in, any fight you've ever had with a spouse or a girlfriend, you've dealt with it. Right. You know, like it's you know, the same they, thing. They're wrong. I'm right. And this is the way to think. And this is the way to do things. And it's like, well, that's just, that's just not the case. Right. And then usually through a lot of failed relationships is where you hopefully grow enough as a person where you're still going to fight and disagree. But then you come back to the middle and you're like, hey, yeah, you know what? I know that I was just reacting to the way that I would do things and what I've kind of done in the past. But I know that that's not the only way to solve that problem. Right. right. So, you know, I think you let people go and um, and yeah, just let them process through their own emotions. And, you know, that's the other thing. I mean, you can't con- necessarily you can't control someone's reaction to it because most of the time people can't control their reactions to it. Um you know, especially in terms of like giving themselves um, different meanings and stuff like that, right? Right. So, 
I think that for the most part, I've had I've had many experiences with patients who've gotten upset with me about certain things. I, I remember this one lady in particular about um, the progress through her shoulder um, rehab from a rotator cuff repair, and we had a, a, a pretty big disagreement about her pain and what it meant and, and this and that. But I still emailed her. I still emailed her, you know, a couple times, uh, you know, once every couple of months or whatever the case was, just to check in with her and be like, hey, look, I hope that your, your progress has come along, that you found a good like provider. Like even after she was oh, yeah, done yeah, working yeah, yeah, with yeah, you. Yeah, 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 for man. sure. And, um, you know, because what, what she had said was, oh, um, I had found this other provider and in like um, whatever the case was, in so many weeks, I was completely out of pain. And I was like, yeah, but when you think about it, I was telling you it was going to take 12 to 16 weeks when you left and then gave someone else another three or four. Well, that was your 12 or 16 week window, right. you know, but, you know, and then, and then I think that she reflected on that a little bit and then it made me reflect on, you know, my behavior towards her. And then, you know, now, I mean, we will just email each other just out of the blue to be like, yo, brother from another mother, what's going on? That's like, how awesome. are you? You like, I've been thinking about you. You've been weighing on my mind with everything that's happened. How's your daughter? How's this? Oh, I saw the post that you put up with Avery the other day. That was like the cutest thing. And it was just because, you know what? Like you just can't let um, emotions just, especially in one instance or any one instance, you know, I think really be fully reflective of the patient that you were right. working with. Cause again, they're coming in with conflict that they need resolved. Or cognitive bias or like their own yeah. confirmation and, and bias. Same, like if this is the result that I get, so that means we. it was right. Right. And so are we, you know, sure, and, totally. and, and when I teach too, that's my upfront thing. I'm like, Hey, look, I'm Joe, I'm a PT. I'm a, I'm a dad, I'm a fiance and I'm a biased human. You know, like I'm just, I have my biases that are going to come out today at some point or another. They came out here in this, you know, hour plus with you. Um, and all I can say is that I'll acknowledge them and I'll try to do better the next time. Sure. Um, you know, and, but you know, you will have your biases as well. And there'll be some things today that I said that people agree with. There'll be some things today that I said that people don't agree with, but you know, that's the whole idea. Like you can't like work your way up in the world and not have probably an equal amount of people think that you're really right about something or you're complete shithead about something. Right. So this is exactly the conversation I had with you know, one of the pro athletes I work with on, on my last podcast episode. Um, and we were talking about just like, you know, people will say like, you can't debate anymore. Right. And this is the point that he brought up, but it's like, you know, if you have two people that have their own agenda, yeah, you're going to have conflict. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, but if you are an expert at any one thing, and I love the way he put this. If you're an expert in a subject matter, you have to go into it with the understanding that you don't have all the answers and that there's a chance that some of the things are wrong right. or maybe misinformed. And so, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. You know, that's okay. That's why we do this. Right. That's why we sit down and start to fill in those gaps. And, and I just, to me, when I, you know, like, again, as an athletic trainer, strength coach, really brought up in like this biomechanics world. And I love, love, love biomechanics. It's part of what I do every day. But when I started to learn a lot of the science behind the BPS model, biopsychosocial, and understand like, wow, for me, it was really validating. Man, I've been doing a lot of things right when it comes to this other side, and I wasn't doing it on purpose. I didn't know I was, you know, when you listen to somebody and letting them get it out, you don't, that's treatment. Yeah. You know, whether you're consciously doing that or not, but I think a growth opportunity for any clinician is to start being more conscious about these other factors. Definitely. Right. So that you can at least, even if you're not, and that's kind of like my approach a lot of times is I might not even reveal that card to the client. You know what I mean? But I just am 
maybe leading them down the direct the road so they get there either themselves or it's a way that I can maybe track some of their progress or maybe later in the process reveal some of these things to them so that they can have that realization moment. Right. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, again, I think the reason I was really excited to have you on was to, you know, like really just talk about that whole other side of it because I, you know, it's really funny because people will seek me out because, oh, I do this instrument assisted stuff, right? They seek you out for a very specific technique and my job is to give them what they want, right? but also what they need. Right, right, right. 100%, and man. seamlessly integrate that where it's like I'm giving them these other things that they didn't recognize that they needed and, and maybe either make them want it or get them to do it without realizing it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you know, the last thing I'll say before, you know, obviously thank you for having me and everything. Oh, dude, I appreciate you for, for um, coming out, man. Is that, you know, when, again, when, when we prioritize treatment, you know, everything is important. And when everything is important, nothing is. Um, and if we were in the Dutch world right now, in the Dutch healthcare system, the Dutch actually have a billable code for listening. So it, it is wow. important, right? It is part of the process and we just can't forget about how much. I love that, man. Uh, Joe, uh, I know you're based in New York city. Yes, and, sir. And, um, can you let some of the listeners know like how they can reach out to you, how, you know, if, if whether they're a patient or Definitely. looking for you for some treatment or maybe even another clinician that wants to learn more sure. about this kind of stuff, because you do have yep. coursework that kind of explores this and maybe a little bit more of like a formatted and yep. educational based way than yep. just our conversation today. Yeah. So my, uh, my, my clinic slash practice slash business, I don't even know what to call it right now in, in, in where the times that we live in, but my, uh, <laughs> my, my, my empowerment platform um, is Strength in Motion Physical Therapy. Um, you can actually find me on Instagram at Strength in Motion Space PT. Uh, my website is obviously strengthinmotionpt.com. That's probably the easiest way to probably just reach out to me. I have my cell phone number there. You can also schedule uh, free phone consultations for 10 minutes. Um, and you can schedule directly onto the website in terms of if you're a patient seeking rehabilitation services or if you're just an athlete who wants to do more mobility style programming or just move and feel better. And I even have mentorship options on there as well for clinicians if they want to either do phone calls or uh, case studies or just have like, you know, these types of conversations with, you know, how I can deal with um, certain issues I'm facing either in my private practice or with a patient and am I covering all my bases? Because I think a lot of times, especially for new grads too, they're, they're entering all these worlds without mentorship. True. You know? And um, you know, maybe they thought they were going to get it and now they are not and they have no one to talk to or bounce ideas off of. And I mean, that's why I've, I don't think I've ever really turned down a podcast is because I love talking to people in different fields, especially when I'm close to them, because it gets my brain going too. So having the ability to talk to people, I think is always valuable. So I offer that on the website as well. But yeah, strength and motion space PT on Instagram or strength and Uh, and I look forward to the opportunity to help as many people as I can. Awesome, man. I really, again, thank you so much for coming out. Thank and, you, brother. And coming and doing this live. No, I appreciate it. This conversation was one of the ones I really wanted to do in person. <laughs> you know, obviously I love you yeah. and I wanted to see you, you. but, um, you know, uh, there, there's just so much to be said about yeah. this experience that we all go through in life as human beings yeah. and, and understanding that that has to come first on some level. And so, um, so again, Ladies and gentlemen, Joe Lavaca, uh, physical therapist. You can find him Strength in Motion PT. Um, also, definitely follow his personal Instagram account, which is at Movement Sherpa. Oh no, that I just changed. Oh, you it. just That's, changed yeah, it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Now it's just Strength in Motion. Strength in Motion PT. PT. Yeah. No more Movement Sherpa. That's it. No. All right. So it's just no, all. We'll talk about Movement Sherpa another time. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I love it. All right. So Strength in Motion PT. Find yourself, uh, Dr. Joe Lavaca, and thanks again, man, for coming out. 
You got it, brother. All right, appreciate it. So if any of you guys are interested in taking one of Joe's courses, whether that's the one on PESI education or what I recommend is checking out rocktape.com and the new Encora Imparo shorts series where Joe is presenting a longer format based called putting motion to emotions, kind of giving you a guideline for, you know, really being able to tap into that mental and emotional and social side for specifically telehealth as we are adapting to this new age of virtual rehab. So definitely go check that out at rocktape.com education. You can also check out what Joe did on PESI education at PESI.com. Um, so again, if you're interested in those, definitely go check those out. Thanks for listening to the Movement Underground Radio. If you like the episode, please subscribe so that you're notified when new episodes drop. You can follow us on Instagram at The Movement Underground. You can follow me on Instagram at MikeStella underscore ATC. Please visit us on the web at themovementunderground.com and check out our YouTube channel at The Movement Underground. If any of you guys have any questions or would like to leave a comment, please do so or reach out to us through any one of those channels. We'd be happy to get back to you. Uh, if you would like to be featured on the Movement Underground Radio, definitely drop us a line and we can talk. So we hope you liked it and we'll see you guys next time.